Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. This morning, we'll be reading together the entirety of this first chapter of our Bible. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and a darkness was over the face of of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it will come as no surprise to you that there has been no shortage of ink spilled on how to interpret Genesis chapter 1. There have been many debates and controversies over when these events took place. That is to say, the age of the universe. There have been many debates and controversies over the specific length of these six days of creation. Now, the Bible, specifically Genesis 1, does not explicitly answer these questions and these issues. Or to put it another way, oftentimes we bring the wrong questions to the text of Genesis chapter 1. We bring scientific questions. And these are questions that the Bible is not intending to answer. The Bible is not a science textbook. The Bible is a theological manual for faith and life. The Bible is a theological manual for faith and life. And thus, God's purpose in Genesis 1 is to give us a theological account of creation. God's purpose in this chapter, Genesis 1, is to call us to faith in Him, our covenant Lord, as the maker of heaven and earth. Indeed, this was the purpose of Moses, the original author of these words in Genesis 1, as he wrote these words to Israel when they were in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. Now, when Israel was in Egypt, they fell into polytheism. 
Yes, Israel embraced the God of Israel, but they also embraced many of the Egyptian gods. Boys and girls, Israel's experience in Egypt was sort of like when you go to the grocery store with your parents. They adopted this God and that God just as you throw into your cart milk and flour and eggs and bread. Now, Egypt not only had their own gods, but they also had their own myths or accounts or stories of creation. And so the purpose behind Moses writing these words to Israel was to call Israel to faith in Yahweh, not as one God among many, but as the one true God, as the only God. The purpose of Moses writing these words to Israel was to call Israel to faith in the true account of creation. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we are bombarded with many different accounts of creation, accounts that attribute the existence of all things to someone or something other than God, other than Yahweh. And thus, God's purpose in Genesis 1 is to call us to faith in the true account of creation. God's purpose in Genesis 1 is to give us a theological understanding of the creation of the universe. God's purpose in Genesis 1 is to call us to faith in him, our covenant Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Well, I'd like to give you an illustration that will serve as sort of our map or outline as we make our way through this chapter. Imagine that there is an artist or artisan who, who, who composes or creates a beautiful piece of artwork. And at some point during this process, the artist steps back and examines or judges his or her piece of artwork and determines that it is ready for sale. And then last of all, this artist places his or her initials or trademark upon the piece of artwork, signifying that it belongs to them. They own that piece of artwork. Well, God here is presented as this grand architect, this grand artist, as it were. And in this chapter, we see God creating. We see God judging or examining his creation And then last of all, we see God placing his initials upon creation by naming the things that he created. So first of all, how does God create here in Genesis chapter 1? Does God just snap his fingers and all things come into existence? Does God just think and it comes to be? No. How does God create? Well, God creates through the means of words. God creates through the means of words. Boys and girls, uh, God's words are his toolbox in Genesis chapter 1. God's words are his toolbox in Genesis chapter 1. You'll notice that ten times, ten times in the midst of this chapter, we hear the phrase, and God said. Ten times we hear this phrase, and God said. One commentator refers to this repeated refrain as the ten words of creation. God creates through the means of his word. Now, as we think more specifically of these ten words of creation, we see that God employs two forms of speech. 
as he creates through the means of his words. And so the first form of speech that we see here in Genesis chapter 1 is that God speaks and things literally come into existence through his utterance. For instance, we see in verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The closest human analogy we have to this form of speech is when a minister in a wedding ceremony declares a man and a woman to be husband and wife for the first time. That minister is speaking reality into existence. That minister is speaking a new relationship into existence through his very own utterance. And that's what we see here in verse 3 and other places of Genesis chapter 1. God speaks reality into existence through his speech. Let there be light, and there was light. Well, the other form of speech that we encounter here in Genesis chapter 1 is God speaking, and through his speaking, he empowers his creation themselves to produce, create, and be fruitful. So God speaks, and in his speech, he empowers his creation to uh, reproduce and be fruitful and create. So for instance, uh, look with me at verse 9. We read, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And what happens? The waters gather themselves. Or verse 11, And God said that the earth sprout vegetation. In verse 20, we see that the earth brought forth vegetation. Or in verse 24, And God said that the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And the earth brought forth living creatures. We also see in verse 22 and 28 that God calls, commands man and the fish and the fowl to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. How does a new sparrow come into existence? God doesn't just say, let there be a new sparrow and a, a sparrow magically descends from heaven. No, the sparrows reproduce, as do the rest of uh, the animals and, and mankind. And so this form of speech reminds us that God is not just creator, but he's also sustainer. This form of speech reminds us that God is not only the author of creation, he's also the author of providence. Just because there are natural explanations to the many things that we encounter in this known universe, uh, such as you know, why apples come from apple trees, or why winter follows fall, or why we can reproduce as a human species. Just because there are natural explanations to these things does not mean that God isn't the divine architect behind these things. Sometimes, as one theologian points out, uh, Christ Christians can fall prey to, the, or at least a version of the God of the gaps apologetic. And what is this apologetic? Well, this apologetic essentially attributes the mysteries of this universe to God. But the, the things in this universe for which there are natural explanations are just that. Natural things uh, of which God is really not all that involved. But we need to remember. We need to remember that our God is is not only the God who says, let there be light, and there was light, but our God also is the God who says, let the earth produce, let the earth bring forth. Both of these forms of speech are God's speech, and therefore God is both the author of creation and the author of providence. 
He didn't just create all things and let it go on its own. God continues to sustain this present creation through the power of his creative and renovative word. This is exactly what the author of the Hebrews reminds us of in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God not only created through the means of his word uh, and son, but he also continues to uphold all things through the means of his powerful word. And so here, our God is wanting to call us to faith. Faith in him and his powerful word, which has not only created all things, but continues to sustain and uphold all things, including your very own body and existence. And so where's your faith and confidence this morning? Is it in upcoming elections or politicians or world leaders? Or is it in yourself, your talents, abilities, and energy? Where's your faith? Where's your confidence? Furthermore, this also reminds us that the reason why Christians throughout the ages have cared so much about written texts, the Bible, creeds, and confessions, is because our God has revealed himself as a God who speaks. God spoke all things into existence. God reveals himself to his covenant people through the means of words. And God continues to create relationships with people through the means of those same words. And so the reason why Christians are people of the book is because we follow a God who speaks, a God who reveals himself through words. And therefore, in Genesis 1, we see that our God creates through his chosen means, his chosen means of words. Well, just as an artist at some point in his or her work will step back and examine, will step back and judge his or her work to see or not, to see whether or not it is ready for sale. So too here in this chapter, we see that God, after each day of creation, steps back and examines his work of creation. God steps back and judges his creation. Another repeated refrain we see here in Genesis chapter 1 is that after God creates, we read, and God saw that it was good. God saw that his creation was good. And after the sixth day, we read, and God saw that it was very good. It was exceedingly good. You know, boys and girls, you probably all have had the experience of having to do a project for school. And when you're doing a project for school, you have to make the judgment about when it is good enough, when you are ready to turn it in. Well, God here creates and he steps back and he examines his work and judges that it meets his expectations. It is exceedingly good. He renders a positive judgment upon his work of creation. And so I'd like us at this point just to briefly reflect upon the goodness, the goodness of God's creation. So the first thing that we learn from God's positive judgment of his creation is that God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. Now, in a couple of chapters, we will come to the first introduction of sin and evil into this universe. But notice that sin and evil 
were not present at the beginning. God created all things good. And so God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of the many miseries and tragedies and horrors that we witness in this fallen universe. God is not the author of evil. Another thing that we learn from God's positive judgment upon creation is that God's creation is beautiful. And here I'd like to briefly reflect upon the literary beauty of Genesis 1. And the literary beauty of Genesis 1 points to the mastery of the divine architect and the actual beauty of creation. And so the literary beauty of Genesis 1 points to the mastery of our divine architect and the actual beauty of creation. Now, there are many things that are literarily beautiful in Genesis 1. For instance, we, as one author puts it, uh, we see this, this wonderful pattern of fiat and fulfillment. God's word coming to fulfillment. He speaks, and there's a direct correspondence between his speech and reality. We see this wonderful way in which God orders all things according to their kinds. It's as if every part of creation knows its place and its appointed role and function. But the aspect that I'd like to focus our attention on now is, is the relationship between these days of creation. There's real beauty uh, between how these days of creation relate to one another. So we see that in days one through three, God creates these creation kingdoms, these creation realms or domains. And then in days four through six, God fills these creation kingdoms with citizens, inhabitants, or creatures. So, for instance, in day one, God is creating the kingdoms of the, the day and the night. And in day four, God fills these kingdoms with inhabitants, citizens, or creatures. With the luminaries, the sun, the moon, and the stars. In day two, we see that God creates the kingdoms of the sky and of the sea. And what does he do then in day five? He fills these kingdoms with creatures, with inhabitants, with the winged creatures and the sea creatures. In day three, God creates the kingdom of, of the dry ground, the earth. And what does he do in day six? Well, he fills this kingdom with land animals and with man. The pinnacle of creation, man created after his own image and likeness. And so we see God creating these grand kingdoms in days one through three. And then days four through six, he is filling these kingdoms with their creatures. And so there is beauty here, beauty in how the author composed this creation narrative. And this literary beauty reflects the actual mastery of our divine architect and the actual beauty of this present creation, the actual kingdoms of the day and the night and of the sky and of the sea and of the land and the, all the manifold creatures that fill these various kingdoms. And so God judges. He judges his creation and he declares that his creation is exceedingly good. It's exceedingly good. Well, as I mentioned before, if you think with me of that illustration that I gave you, just as an artist or an artisan will at some point likely place his or her initials or trademark upon 
his or her artwork, so too we see that God here in Genesis 1 places his initials upon creation by naming his creation. God places his initials upon creation by naming his creation. Now in days one through three, you'll notice that God names each one of these creation kingdoms. Each one of these creation domains or realms, God names. He names the day and the night. He names the heavens and the seas. He names the dry ground as earth. He gives names to these kingdoms, to these realms, to these domains that he creates. And in naming these creation kingdoms, God is exercising authority and sovereignty over these kingdoms. In the ancient Near East, which was the secular context of the Old Testament, the way in which a king or a nation would exercise authority or sovereignty over another king or nation is by naming that king or the people within that nation. So, for instance, in Daniel 1, verse 7, we hear that Daniel and his friends are given new names by the Babylonian government. What does this teach us? This teaches us that Daniel, and by extension the people of Israel, are under the authority and sovereignty of Babylon. And so, what the author is communicating to us as we hear that God is naming these various creation kingdoms is that God is sovereign over the sky and of the sea. God is sovereign over the day and the night. God is sovereign over the dry ground. It also stands to reason that if the creatures, the creatures of days four through six, fill these kingdoms, then that God is also sovereign over the creatures, the creatures that he creates in days four through six. And so God, as he names these kingdoms, is, is demonstrating to us that he is sovereign, that he has authority over all that exists. Indeed, this is exactly what God reminds us of in Psalm 50. Listen to what God says through the words of David in in verses 10 through 12 of Psalm 50. He says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Now, this should remind us that we are stewards. We are stewards of creation. We are never owners or masters of creation. We are never the creator and sustainer of creation. We are mere creatures. Now, of course, we will see in Genesis chapter 2 that God commissions Adam to name some of the creatures that fill these creation kingdoms. But as Adam names the creatures, he's merely ruling under the greater reign and rule of God. Another way to think about Adam's naming of creatures is really simply God naming the creatures through Adam. And so we are mere stewards. We are mere stewards of creation. So as we think about some of the hot-button issues that that surround our, our current day, issues relating to Uh, gender or marriage or sexuality. Genesis 1 reminds us that we do not, as creatures, have the right to redefine these things. We We do not have the right to redefine gender or marriage or what proper sexuality is and looks like. We are stewards. We are creatures. God is the one who named 
his creation. God is the one who exercises authority and sovereignty over all that he made. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Moses is the original author of these words in Genesis 1, and and Moses was writing these words to Israel. Israel during those wilderness wandering years between Egypt and Canaan. And Israel, during this time of their history, they knew God to be Redeemer. In fact, Moses revealed to Israel the covenant name of God, Yahweh, to them. Israel experienced God's salvation and redemption through the waters of the Red Sea. And so here God is reminding Israel that their God is not only Redeemer, but also Creator. God wants Israel to keep these two parts of his identity together. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we see that, God, that Moses reveals God's covenant name to us, Yahweh. This refers to how God is a covenant-keeping God. This refers to how God is our Redeemer. This shows us that the God of Genesis 1 is Yahweh. The God of Genesis 1 is also our Redeemer. And so where in Genesis 1 do we get a glimpse, an echo, you could say, of God as Redeemer? Well, I think we see God as Redeemer by way of analogy. So again, think of that earlier point that I made, uh, how God created, God created through the means of his words. Just as God speaks all things into existence and reality literally comes to be, so too, God speaks to us through his written word and through the preaching of his word. And through that preaching of his word, he imparts life to dead sinners. Through that preaching of his word, he justifies the ungodly. This is the exact point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, God who gives life to the dead... By implication, through the preaching of his word, God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Paul is connecting God's speech in original creation and God's speech, which brings about new creation. And just as God's speech in Genesis 1 is not a bare word, it comes accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, what do we read in Genesis 1 verse 2? That the Spirit was hovering over that, all that which is formless and void. In a similar way, when God's word is read, when God's word is announced, when God's word is preached, this is not a bare word. This word comes with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes this word effectual in our hearts and lives. This should give us a heightened, a heightened view of what goes on in these simple, ordinary worship services that we partake of each and every Lord's Day. When God's law is preached, we are to hear an echo of the gavel of God's judgment, which will come down on the last day. When God's law is preached, we are to hear an echo of the gavel of God's judgment, which will come down on the last day. When the gospel is preached, we are not simply receiving pious advice or encouragement or 
or what we should do in order to be saved. Rather, when the gospel is preached, God is literally speaking reality into existence. When the gospel is preached, God is speaking us into the new creation, into an entirely different age, the age to come. When the gospel is preached, God is declaring us in the midst of his divine courtroom righteous, not because of our good works, but because of the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the gospel is proclaimed, God is giving new life to sinners. When the gospel is proclaimed, Christ and all his benefits are delivered. When the gospel is proclaimed, God is uniting you more and more to his risen son who is seated at his right hand. And so when the gospel is preached, we don't need to do anything in order to make it effectual. God makes it effectual in its very utterance. That is what distinguishes the preaching of the word from any other form of communication that you hear throughout the week. You don't have to do anything to make it effectual. God is speaking his purposes into being. And he does this. He accomplishes his purpose in a way that transcends our cognition. He does this in a way that transcends our rationality, even our memory. And the, the reason why this is encouraging is that on, on those Lord's days in which you are distracted, those Lord's days in which you're tired, those Lord's days in which your mind is wandering, you're caring for a young child, God still is accomplishing his purpose. This isn't, of course, an excuse to be lazy, but it is, it is an encouragement. An encouragement to come and receive God's means of grace no matter how you find yourself each Lord's Day because God promises to accomplish his purpose in you through his word despite your weakness. That's the promise that we have. That's the promise that we have each and every Lord's Day. And so congregation of Christ, here in Genesis 1, God is calling us to faith. God is calling us to faith in him our covenant Lord, as the maker of heaven and earth. And this faith, even this faith that God is calling us to, is a result of God's creative and renovative word as it works in our midst. In a few moments, we will have the privilege of coming to the Lord's Supper. And apart from God's word, God's word as it's announced here in the sermon, God's word as it's proclaimed in the form that I'm about to, to read, apart from God's word, this bread and wine would merely be bread and wine. But, but, through God's powerful and creative word, these ordinary elements are transformed. Transformed into instruments through which we enjoy union and communion with our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let us pray.